Much of what we fear seems to be each other. You fear the world I want to live in, and I fear your visions in turn. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, On the Media, Backstory, The Majority Report, The Ezra Klein Show, and a TED Talk by Anand Girdhidharadas. Today, we spend the rest of the hour with the famed sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild. She spent much of the last five years with some of Donald Trump's biggest supporters researching her new book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. It has just been nominated for an American for an American Book Award. Uh, congratulations, Arlie. Thank you. So talk about why you wrote this book. You're a professor at University of California, Berkeley, a sociologist. What brought you to Southern Louisiana? Well, five years ago, I, I felt we were already uh, moving uh, far apart and the right was growing. And I was in an enclave. Um, a geographic enclave, a media enclave, electronic enclave. We're all in enclaves. And I figured I want to get as far out of my enclave as I possibly could. I'm Berkeley, California, teach sociology. Where's the opposite end? I thought, okay, the right is growing in the south. So, south. Uh, it's growing among whites. Okay, whites. Um, older evangelical. Okay, older evangelical, although not, not all uh, were evangelical. And where's the super South? And I looked at um, uh, 2012, how many whites voted for Obama? In California, it was half. In the South as a whole, as a whole region, it was a third. And in Louisiana, it was 16%. I thought, super south. Okay, that's where I want to go. So as luck would have it, I had one contact there, and I took it from there. In the end, over five years, um, I interviewed 60 people. 40 were Tea Party uh, enthusiasts. And what I really did was want to climb an empathy wall. I wanted to take my own political alarm system off and actually try and see how it felt to be them. Um, and actually, you know, I had an interesting experience with uh, one of the first women I met. She was a gospel singer in a Pentecostal church, very friendly, outgoing. I met her at Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana meeting. She was across the table. She said, I love Rush Limbaugh. I thought to myself, I should talk to her. I, I don't know why. I, I'm interested. I'm curious. So at Sweet Teas the next day, she said, oh, I love Rush Limbaugh because he hates feminazis. OK, took a little while. And I, I said, well, what is feminazi? What? And, and, well, it's those feminists, you know, that are hard and tough and mean and ambitious. I thought, well, I don't like hard, tough, mean people either, you know, thinking that. And then she said, uh, um, has it been hard to hear what I'm saying? I thought, well, she's, she's looking back at me. And I told her, actually, no, 
it's not because I have my alarm system off and I'm, I'm trying to find out what life feels like to you. So, and then she said, you know, I do that sometimes. And then we had that actually in common. And then she explained, you know what I really like about Rush Limbaugh? He seems to defend me against all the liberal media that think I'm a redneck, that I'm backward, that I'm Southern, that I'm uneducated, uh, that uh, uh, I'm uh, homophobic, racist, uh, sexist, and, and uh, thanks for coming. So it was an amazing experience, and I met some very interesting, complex people that don't fit the deplorable category, but are complex each in their own, and that in many ways might have a lot of affinity with the left, if we could only cross well, that bridge. After all of those interviews and that time spent, you decided on the, on the title Strangers in Their Own Land. Why? Yes. Well, here's the thing. Um, I decided on that title because in the end it it described how a lot of them felt. Um, I, I talk about a deep story because at the end of the day I keep asking, uh, why do you hate the government? You know, what, all the things the government does. And he would say um, uh, there were many answers to that, but one was this. It, it was the deep story. What is a deep story? It's, it, you, it's a story that feels true to you. You take the facts out. You take uh, judgment out. It's as felt. You're, you're uh, on a uh, waiting in line for something you really want at the end, the American dream. You feel a sense of great deserving. You've worked very hard. A lot of these guys were uh, plant workers, pipe fitters in the petrochemical uh, industry, tough work. So you've worked really hard. And the line isn't moving. It's like a pilgrimage up, up to the top. It's not moving. Then you see some people cut in line. Well, who are they? They are uh, affirmative action women who would go for uh, formerly all men's jobs or affirmative action blacks who had been sponsored uh, and now have access to formerly all white jobs. It's immigrants. It's, uh, it's refugees. And from as felt, the, the line's moving back. Then they see uh, uh, Barack Hussein Obama who should impartially be be monitoring the line, wave to the, the line cutters. And then you think, oh, he's their president and not mine. And in fact, he's a line cutter. How did he get to Harvard? How did he get to Columbia? Where did he get the money? His mom was a single mom. Wait a minute. And then they begin to feel like strangers in their own land. They feel like the government has become a giant marginalization machine. It's not theirs. In fact, it's putting them back. And then someone in front of the line turns around and says, oh, you redneck, you know, and that feels insult to injury. It's just the tipping point at which they feel not only estranged, I mean, demographically, they're getting smaller. They feel like they're religious in an increasingly secular culture. Uh, their attitudes are denigrated, and, um, and uh, so they're culturally denigrated, and then the economy begins to shake. 
and then they feel, I, I need another leader. Because Kentucky is both a Trump stronghold and a place where Obamacare has been so successful, from the outside, it's easy to see it as a place where people are voting against their own interests, something that uh, we liberal elites often say about people who voted for Trump. Do you buy that? The Kentuckians who sort of took this step to create a very effective very well organized, very well promoted connect program that enrolled hundreds of thousands of people in insurance are the same Kentucky voters who may have voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. But it's more complicated than the single issue. I think the fact that you acknowledge the liberal elite view, that does have an effect on people when the message they're getting is that not only are their political opinions wrong, but they are also perhaps not intellectually sound. I'm from Kentucky. I've lived here about half my life. I lived in a couple other states, both south of the Mason-Dixon line. But I recently was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. And I was really shocked at the disconnect between the people that I knew in Kentucky and the strongly held assumptions about who those people are, that they were backwards and perhaps not very bright. And if you were well-spoken and didn't have a thick accent that you were somehow the exception. They made you an exception? It felt like that to me sometimes, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about this, and I had a, a long drive to the office today, and I was thinking about the questions that are asked. Is the question to ask, you voted for Trump and you got Medicaid, do you regret that now? Or why did you make that decision when you have benefited from this program? I think the better question to ask now that we're trying to move forward and there is greater interest in flyover country, which I'm grateful for, is what story hasn't been told? What is the story the media haven't told? I think the reflection of Kentucky across the nation is really shown mostly through poverty porn, where they jet into the poorest parts of the poorest place and they show the people in, in the most desperate situations. And sadly, that is true for Kentucky. But there are also people within those same communities who are working very hard to maintain those communities, to grow those communities, to care for other people within that community. And I don't think that story is told enough. And do you think that if that story were told, it would offer clarity in the, in the current debate over the Affordable Care Act and its repeal? The focus is mainly on the cost and that in the long term, the system is going to bankrupt health care overall. So by helping those who previously were uninsured, the story is that we're threatening the entire system for those working class or middle class people who are more worthy of getting health care. You know, the representative who said people without pre-existing conditions lead good lives and therefore shouldn't have to pay for people who don't lead good lives. That reduces the status of one's health 
to your ability to work hard enough to maintain it. I have asthma. I've worked since I was 16 years old. Does the fact that I have asthma make me less worthy to have health insurance if I lost my job? I think it's a moral question. So you have given people, a large number of people, medicine and access to care that could be either life-changing or life-saving. And now you're coming back around and you're saying, no, not really. We didn't mean it. And why isn't that a question of morality and not a fiscal responsibility? You mentioned that perhaps some Trump voters didn't actually think he would repeal Obamacare, but that he'd make it better. What about now? Is the congressional chaos eroding that belief? I think the congressional chaos is largely invisible to a lot of middle-class working folks who are trying to get through the end of their week. They're not that engaged in the political increments of policy. And so, unfortunately, I think it takes until people get slapped in the face with the reality to prompt action. And that's happened in Kentucky, where the town halls have been filled with people who are angry about the possibility of losing their health care. And there are a lot of activists in Kentucky who are also actively working to help motivate people to tell their leadership that they want to keep their health care. Given that you don't live in this bubble, what do you wish Kentuckians could hear from the media and from Washington? And what do you wish Kentuckians could say to the media and Washington? I think it's two-pronged. One, yes, fundamentally, there are people who live here who've been suffering for generations. Two, there are highly qualified, competent people who have been successful in their education and their lives who also live here and who also may have voted for Trump. And I think that's the total message that has been lost. It's not just ignorant rednecks who voted for Trump. There are people who I know to be very intelligent, pillars of the community who voted for Trump. So there's not a Trump voter. This disconnect between the media elite, who were sure that Hillary was going to win, and the people here that I knew who were sure that she was going to lose, has to be sort of a jumping off point. We have to look at how that's happened. And I don't think it's happened over the course of this election. I think it's happened over a long number of years. I saw a recent map of where journalists are. There's huge parts of the country where there's not very many. So let's see about getting out here. Have some people move here to cover Kentucky or, you know, look for people on the ground who are familiar with their communities and have a history of reporting them. That's how things will change. It's not going to change by sending an occasional reporter to Whitley County to say, Trump voter, do you now wish you hadn't voted for Donald Trump? I don't think that's the right approach. Mary, thank you very much. You're welcome. Mary, what are you laughing about? <laughs> I just, I, did I defend my people adequately? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> I think okay. so. I wasn't attacking them. No, I don't think you were. I just think it's hard to articulate because on the face, it seems so incongruent. But I think that's why it matters to have some depth and knowledge of the place that you're trying to report on because a lot of red states have not been on the media's agenda for quite some time. Yep. I mean, that's the thing. Yes, there were Trump rallies, but there were also large, large protests. There was a, a women's march in Lexington, Kentucky, that I have never seen a crowd that big. 
And there were places like Pikeville and Moorhead and Bowling Green who also had anti-Trump rallies. So there's not just one kind of Kentuckian that people are used to sort of checking a box about. There's a lot of different kinds of us. Come meet us. One of our listeners called in with a question about partisan satire. Hi, this is Margot from Washington, D.C. Why does it seem like liberals have a monopoly on satire? Why isn't there a conservative version of The Daily Show or Colbert Report last week tonight? Did conservatives ever have popular satire? We got political historian Brian Rosenwald on the line to answer Margot's questions. He told me one of the biggest names in conservative media today actually struck a satirical chord early in his career. It might surprise people today because the show has changed over time, but especially in the early days when Rush Limbaugh went national in 1988, he did all kinds of satirical bits. He did one thing where he played a record and he, he told his audience, if you play it backwards, you're going to hear the devil. And he had someone overdub like voice parts in so that when he played it backwards, you heard this voice speaking <laughs> to you and, and silly, fun kind of things like that. And was it the voice of Ted Kennedy? I can't remember who did the voice, but Ted Kennedy is a frequent target on conservative talk radio in a satirical way. Rush did a parody to the tune of Dion's The Wanderer that was called The Philanderer. The lyrics include lines like, I'm the type of guy who will never settle down because I'm a philanderer. Yes, a philanderer. I sleep around, 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 around. <laughs> and he makes jokes. He used to say he was a supporter of the women's movement when he was behind it. You know, things that to a certain ear were very funny um, and to other people, they were horrible. But just like, you know, Jon Stewart can make a joke about white Christian men in a way that his audience might find funny. Rush Limbaugh can do that with minority groups. But if conservatives can do satire, why isn't there a conservative version of The Daily Show or The Colbert Report? Actually, Brian, they've tried. Uh, there was a Fox show called The Half Hour news program that didn't last very long, frankly, because it wasn't very good. <laughs> um, and it's the same problem liberals had in talk radio. They're not as focused on entertaining. They have more political goals. So the venue and the audience really matter incredibly. Brian, it seems like both liberal and conservative satirists need to make fun of somebody. Uh, somebody needs to be, quote, victimized by their humor. But is it possible that conservatives more often make fun of groups that are currently or quite or at least were quite recently marginalized, not really part of the establishment, uh, genuinely discriminated against? I think that's true. But I think to understand from a conservative perspective, satire at its best is challenging established power structures. And I think to a lot of conservatives, because the status quo was changed through the rights movements of the, the 60s and 70s, they feel like groups were being favored by government. They feel 
like they are being put down and, and are powerless themselves. And so to them targeting those people, they don't see minority groups. It's one reason that conservative satire can be so controversial. To a liberal ear, the bits sound horrible. They sound racist. They sound sexist. Right. To a conservative ear, it sounds like these people who are getting you know, the government to go to bat for them and be on their side and advantage them over you, the long-suffering conservative who feels marginalized and maligned and isn't sure what you can say in polite company anymore. It's nice to be able to hear someone saying the things that you're thinking and doing it in a funny way. We called Margo back to see if Brian Rosenwald answered the question. I think it was very surprising to learn that conservative groups might themselves feel maligned. And as a fairly liberal person, it would be hard for me to see it that way. So it's interesting. Marco, did you find the philanderer, which I will deem classic satire, did you find it funny? It was bordering on funny. I wouldn't say it was (laughs) great satire because just making fun of someone for something they already know, it didn't really seem to connect any dots that things like The Daily Show are really famous for kind of making those points or calling out hypocritical people. You know, it's just making fun of Ted Kennedy for being a philanderer, which I guess is kind of funny. Marco, not kidding about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Rush the Magic Dragon, the right-wing drugstore cowboy, a hillbilly heroin addict, a ditto-head deadhead now, boy. You know that my opinions were always kind of whack. Now you know the reason. I'm strung out on Mountain Smack. My drugs are red, white, and blue. I also like the pink ones, the little green ones, too. When you're on drugs, you see things that no one else can see. Like right there, I saw Jesus, and he drives an SUV. My drugs are red, white, and blue. Would you hand all the guns out to someone sniffing glue? You gotta be on something if you push the NRA. I need more pills to make that Michael Moore guy go away. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen did a report on a fellow named Craig Moss. Um, We've been talking a lot about the Donald Trump supporters who are having voters' remorse about Donald Trump. They're uh, upset that he's come into office and is proposing to wage a full frontal assault on the well-being, the health, and the decency of, of any you know middle-class, working-class person that voted for him. Uh, I would really hesitate. I don't, I don't think that this is a time for, you know, we shouldn't be happy that these people are getting their comeuppance. We should be trying to deliver for them if their concerns are valid um, and they're disappointment is real about real things because bear in mind where is donald trump fulfilling his promises to his base it's in doing disgusting things he talked about doing muslim ban horrific approach to immigration ice enforcement and when he was talking behind closed doors to people like paul ryan about decimating the social safety net and increasing poverty he's doing those things what he is not doing is when he ran on the left critiquing Obamacare, when he talked about corporate monopolies, when he talked about the system being corrupt, we all know that. And okay, it should have been obvious he was lying, but not for some people. And here's CNN's report on a guy named Craig Moss, who was a diehard Donald Trump supporter. Now he is really, really upset 
about Trump's uh, approach decimating health care. Craig Moss was a true believer in Donald Trump. Trump ran 100% Trump supporter. There is no other choice. During the presidential campaign, he followed Trump to 45 rallies across the U.S. Trump and he did it for a very personal reason. I came home and found my son Rob J.R. Moss dead in his bed, and um, it was devastating to me. His son Rob died of a heroin overdose in 2014. He was 24. We will help all of those people so seriously addicted. We'll get them assistance. Moss believed Trump's campaign promises, especially when Trump reached out to him at a rally. And I know what you went through. And he's a great father. I can see it. And your son is proud of you. Your son is proud of you. But Moss is a Trump supporter no more. Tell me about this guitar. Do you play this guitar anymore? Nope. Why not? I'm not on the Trump trail anymore, and, I, and, I, and I've lost my heart to play the Trump songs. Moss, who believes his son might still be alive if he'd had health insurance, can't believe Trump supports the Republican health care plan. It would increase the number of uninsured Americans, and it would end the Obamacare requirement that the 31 states with expanded Medicaid cover addiction services. I believed everything he said. And now? Now I don't, I, I don't believe that he was true in his word when he was speaking. I think he was looking for votes, to be honest with you. It's not at all what Mr. Trump promised everybody he was going to provide for us. And I feel that down. I, 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 angry, I, I feel hurt inside. Now that Moss has changed his tune, the only song he wanted to sing for us is a song he wrote in memory of his son. Thinking about the times we spent together. Well, that's really depressing. Uh, I remember that, you know, when Donald Trump would talk about that Bible parable, I think it was, that's very popular with conservatives about letting the snake in and you know that you're letting it in because you know what it was. I mean, we said it at the time, he's describing himself. Do you have that? You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. That should have been his thank you tour to all of his supporters. Um, he could have just said that on loop. Uh, but, you know, there are serious conclusions to this. Um, during the campaign, the press was obsessively focusing on both Donald Trump and then also on all of Hillary Clinton's supposed scandals and a couple of her real scandals. And Hillary Clinton only ever talked about Donald Trump. There was only one candidate who, even though he's a lying piece of garbage, was actually talking about people. That was Donald Trump. So he was able to ride that scam to the White House. And when you look at, again, the conclusions and the voting totals from this election, what you needed to do, this gentleman maybe was persuadable. It seems to me that if you made clear that this real estate scumbag is going to take away your health insurance and would never have helped your son, he'll use your son to get votes, that might have persuaded him. You combine that with some of the depressed totals of people that needed to come out, African-Americans in Wisconsin, as an example, they needed a message on the economy, which once again was not forthcoming. And the only reason to keep restating this point is not to beat a dead horse because the horse isn't dead yet. They still have not 
converged and clarified even remotely on a message. They talk far more Russia than Medicaid. That's a big problem. Should learn from this segment. Today's episode is all about getting outside our own bubbles to try to understand those who don't necessarily agree with us and to get that 10,000 foot view of what's driving our modern politics and culture. And this is a task I think becomes more and more important as our media universes naturally narrow with our phones and social media feeds increasingly showing us only that which we already agree with, of course, sprinkled with cleverly disguised lies and opinions. Well, the news and politics show that I've been listening to longer and more consistently than any other shares this value. On the Media is WNYC's weekly investigation into how the media shapes our worldview. While maintaining the civility and fairness that are the hallmarks of public radio, Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are your hosts as On the Media tackles sticky issues and untangles this era's most intractable questions. Catch them on their podcast as I have each week for the last 12 years, if you can believe it. That's On the Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The States is a little different because um, it never was a homogeneous country, right? There was always people of different ethnicities in the country. Um, but there's a very clear racial hierarchy. Sure, you had Native Americans. Sure, you had African Americans, but they were very badly treated. And though you had people from more different nations and religions coming in, they actually still had a lot of commonality. By and large, they were European and Christian, right? Some Jews. And now for the first time, the country has to actually grapple with making a multi-ethnic society, which it always been, but an equal multi-ethnic society where we're overcoming the racial hierarchy. And by the way, we've done some, made some real progress in that compared to 50 years ago. And there's something that's often forgotten, I think, in discussions today. Compared to 50 years ago, the United States is a much, much, much more equal society among racial lines. But it's obviously still far from being truly equal. And similarly to Europe, there are some people who embrace that equality and aspire to it and want to push it further, and some people who are really frightened by it. And that is, both of those are sort of unique experiments. We don't have many examples in human history of equal multi-ethnic democracies. So we're struggling to create one. So this speaks to a debate that has been very heated and long-running over the past two years, I would say, three years maybe in America, which is the rise of right-wing populism, mm. uh, which I think we, again, typically talk about this in America about Donald Trump, but it has, it's the Le Pens in France. Yep. It is Brexit uh, in England. I mean, you see this in a lot of different countries. Is it a function of economics and economic stagnation? Right. So as soon as the economies are growing well again, it'll just sort of like poof, go away. Or if we had a better social safety net, it would poof, go away. Um, or is it a reaction to these very sharply changing, very fast changing demographics. I mean, something I think people don't always realize is that in America and then also in Europe, the demographic change, the, the racial and ethnic demographic change in the past 50 years, very rapid, 30 years has been very, very rapid, yeah. particularly in Europe because of the opening of the, the EU. A lot of the evidence I've seen has tilted me more towards the, this is about changing demographics. It, mm -hmm. it was not all that heavily correlated to growth rates in the last couple of years. 
but I also recognize the interplay is complicated. I'm curious where where you come down on that, where where the evidence feels strongest to you. So let's take them one by one. So I think that there's a lot of really simplistic thought going on in this space. The first simplistic thought is that it's, it has to be one or the other, right? And that's just like, generally speaking, the social world is not monocausal. When really interesting big phenomena are going on, it's rarely one thing that makes it happen. I know, it's it's a often an uh, interplay, right? Well, no, it's not a bummer because it means that, it is that if you all have to write things about it. that... I'm just kidding. I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm no, kidding. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. It's a dumb joke. <laughs> um, so, so first of all, it's not clear to me that we have to remake it one or the other. But even when you look at each of them, um, it's a little more complicated than people want to say, right? So, so I've seen a lot of analyses which are, you know, does your income level predict very well whether or not you support Donald Trump? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's true. It doesn't. So it's nothing to do with the economy. I think that's such a simplistic thing to jump to. It seems to me that when you look into the granular details, it becomes much more predictive. So it's not about how wealthy are you. A, because the very poorest often aren't that tempted by forms of populism um, or, or even forms of fascism historically, um, because they have direct benefits that they get from the state and they sort of need it in, 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 a, in a bigger way. And, and precisely because it's often around resentment. It's a feeling of decline. Now, people at the very bottom of, of society have always been at the bottom, don't have a feeling of decline, they've always been at the bottom. But people who, ha who have a feeling of decline are sort of the lower middle classes, the middle classes who feel that they're slipping. Those are probably the people in the book that we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, so, so that's the first reason. Also, historically, like the people who vote Republican are much wealthier, right? So, so actually that's shifted down in the Trump election. That's, that's significant. But what's really going on, I think, is, and I know people sort of ballyhoo this phrase, is, is economic anxiety. When you look at the communities who voted for Trump, it is people where locally there's very little economic growth, who perhaps are still doing fine, but who have neighbors who are underwater on the mortgage, who have the next community over that's not doing very well, who are in sectors of the economy where they actually have good reason to think that they're going to suffer from automation and so on, who are in more rural areas, um, which which aren't profiting from globalization and technology in the way that New York City, Washington, D.C., and the Bay Area are. So once you start looking at slightly more detailed things there, it, it becomes more of a story. And similarly for the sort of identity and 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 demographic transformation sort of thing, right? Look, there's a really simple argument against this that people weirdly don't make, but that's, that, that is simplistic in exactly the same way, which is, well, if it's driven by demographic transformation, why isn't New York City voting for Trump in massive numbers? Why isn't California voting for Trump in massive numbers? It's not true that the parts of a country that vote for Trump are the parts of a country that are most diverse, right? Well, we have an understanding that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, three quarters of American counties were more than 90% white 20 years ago and are now less than 90% white. I think that moment of a demographic transition is often when you get the most anger. So as you go from being a pretty diverse place and you have to deal with people who are not like you all of the time anyway, to being in a place that's really diverse and you have to deal with people who are not like you, you know, more often, it doesn't matter so much to people. But when you go from a place where everybody's like you, basically, and you really don't have to deal with people who don't speak perfect English, who, who have different beliefs from you, and then suddenly this is a part of your daily life, that's when people often get really, really scared. And that's true in a lot of a country, and it's true in a lot of the places that voted for, for Donald Trump. Now, how do these things fit together? How do they interrelate? And, and that, I think, is a really important thing. I, I've thought a lot about the image of somebody who 
is proud of a job and that gives them an identity. You ask somebody 30 years ago who was a coal miner, somebody who works in a factory, somebody who's in a union, who are you? So the question, who are you? I think a lot of them would have said, I'm a coal miner. I'm a member of the Teamsters. I'm a foreman in a factory. And as they lose those jobs, and perhaps they're still doing materially okay, perhaps they're now a shift manager at Walmart, but they've now transitioned into jobs that don't give them the same identity, that don't give them the sense of collective belonging, that don't give them the same pride. And you ask them, who are you? They say, well, you know what? I, I'm white. I'm not being treated well in this country anymore. And I'm resentful that those people over there are now doing better than me. Right? So a lot of the racial resentment, a lot of the resentment at the demographic transition, I think is itself driven by those underlying, more complicated economic fears. It's one thing to say, look, I'm twice as rich as my parents were. My kids are going to be twice as rich as me. And oh, look, that immigrant over there, he's doing really well too. Good for him. Versus I feel like I've worked really hard all my life and I haven't gotten ahead. I, I don't have a better life than my parents. And I think my, my kids are going to be screwed. And why on earth is that immigrant over there doing okay? Right? It, it just changes the context in which we have this conversation. I kept the faith and I kept vouching Not for the iron fish but for the helping hand For theirs is a land with a wall around it And mine is a faith in my fellow man Call up the craftsman, bring me the draftsman Build me a path from cradle to grave and I'll give my consent to any government that does not deny a man a living wage. My dear fellow citizen, I write to you today, to you who have lost in this era. At this moment in our common life, when the world is full of breaking and spite and fear. I address this letter simply to you, even though we both know there are many of you behind this you, and many of me behind this I. I write to you because at present, this quaking world we share scares me. I gather it scares you, too. Some of what we fear, I suspect, we fear in common. But much of what we fear seems to be each other. You fear the world I want to live in, and I fear your visions in turn. Do you know that feeling you get when you know it's going to storm before it storms? Do you also feel that now, fellow citizen? That malaise and worry that some who know feel reminds them of the 1930s? Perhaps you don't. Because our fears of each other are not in sync. In this round, I sense that your fears of me, of the world that I have insisted is right for us both, has gathered over a generation. 
It took time for your fears to trigger my fears, not least because at first I never thought I needed to fear you. I heard you, but did not listen all these years when you said that this amazing new world wasn't amazing for you, for many of you across the industrialized world, that the open, liquid world I relished of people and goods and technologies flowing freely, going where they pleased globally, was not, for you, an emancipation. I have walked through your towns, and while looking, failed to see. I did notice in Stephenville, Texas, that the town square was dominated by one lawyer's office after another because of all the people rotating in and out of prison. I did notice the barren shops in Wagner, South Dakota, and the VFW gathering hall that stood in mockery of a community's dream to endure. I did notice at the Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Walmart, that far too many people in their 20s and 30s looked a decade or two from death with patchy, flared-up skin and thinning, stringy hair and browning, ground-down teeth and a lostness in their eyes. I did notice that the young people I encountered in Paris, in Florence, in Barcelona had degrees but no place to take them living on internships well into their 30s, their lives prevented from launching because of an economy that creates wealth, just not jobs. I did notice the news about those parts of London becoming ghost quarters, where the global super-rich turn fishy money into empty apartments, and price lifelong residents of a city, young couples starting out, out of their own home. And I heard that the fabric of your life was tearing. You used to be able to count on work, and now you couldn't. You used to be able to nourish your children and guarantee that they would climb a little bit further in life than you had and now you couldn't. You used to be made to feel dignity in your work, and now you didn't. It used to be normal for people like you to own a home, and now it wasn't. I cannot say I didn't know these things, but I was distracted, creating a future in which we could live on Mars, even as you struggled down here on Earth. I was distracted, innovating immortality, even as many of you began to live shorter lives than your parents had. I heard all these things, 
but I didn't listen. I looked, but didn't see. I read, didn't understand. I paid attention only when you began to vote and shout. And when you're voting and shouting, when the substance of it began to threaten me. I listened only when you moved towards shattering continental unions and electing vulgar demagogues. Only then did your pain become of interest to me. I know that feeling hurt is often prologue to dealing hurt. I wonder now if you would be less eager to deal it if I had stood with you when you merely felt it. I ask myself why I didn't stand with you then. One reason is that I became entranced by the gurus of change, became a worshiper of the religion of the new for novelty's sake and of globalization and open borders and kaleidoscopic diversity. Once change became my totalizing faith, I could be blind. I could fail to see change's consequences. I could overlook the importance of roots, traditions, rituals, stability, and belonging. And the more fundamentalist I became in my worship of change and openness, the more I drove you toward the other polarity, to cling, to freeze, to close, to belong. I now see, as I didn't before, that not having the right skin or right organ is not the only varietal of disadvantage. There is a subtler, quieter disadvantage in having those privileged traits and yet feeling history to be moving away from you. That while the past was hospitable to people like you, the future will be more hospitable to others. That the world is growing less familiar, less yours day by day. I will not concede for a moment, that old privileges should not dwindle. They cannot dwindle fast enough. It is for you to learn to live in a new century in which there are no bonuses for showing up with the right skin and right organs. If and when your anger turns to hate, please know that there is no space for that in our shared home. But I will admit, fellow citizen, that I have discounted the burden of coping with the loss of status. I have forgotten that what is socially necessary can also be personally grueling. A similar thing happened with the economy that you and I share. Just as I cannot and don't wish to turn back the clock on equality and diversity, and yet must understand the sense of loss they can inspire. So too, I refuse and could not, if I wished, turn back the clock on an ever more closely knit interdependent world and on inventions that 
won't stop being inventive. And yet I must understand your experience of these things. You have for years been telling me that your experience of these things is not as good as my theories forecast. Yet before you could finish a complaining sentence about the difficulty of living with erratic hours, volatile pay, vanishing opportunities, about the pain of dropping your children off at 24-hour daycare to make your 3 a.m. shift. I shot back at you before you could finish your sentence, my dogma about how what you were actually experiencing was flexibility and freedom. Language is one of the only things that we truly share. And I sometimes used this joint inheritance to obfuscate and deflect and justify myself, to rebrand what was good for me as something appearing good for us both. When I threw around terms like the sharing economy and disruption and global resourcing, I see now that what I was really doing at times was buying your pain on the cheap, sprucing it up, and trying to sell it back to you as freedom. I have wanted to believe and wanted you to believe that the system that has been good to me, that has made my life ever more seamless, is also the best system for you. I have condescended to you with the idea that you are voting against your economic interests. Voting against your interests. As if I know your interests. That is just my dogmatic economism talking. I have a weakness for treating people's economic interests as their only interests, ignoring things like belonging and pride and the desire to send a message to those who ignore you. So here we are in a scary but not inexplicable moment of demagoguery, fracture, xenophobia, resentment, and fear. And I worry for us both if we continue down this road. Me not listening, you feeling unheard, you shouting to get me to listen. I worry when each of us is seduced by visions of the future that have no place for the other. If this goes on, if this goes on, there may be blood. There are already hints of this blood in the newspaper every day. There may be roundups, raids, deportations, camps, secessions. And no, I do not think that I exaggerate. There may be even talk of war in places that were certain they were done with it. There is always the hope of redemption. But it will not be a cheap, shallow redemption that comes through blather about us all being in it together. This will take more. It will take accepting that we both made choices to be here.
We create our others as parents, as neighbors, as citizens. We witness and sometimes ignore each other into being. You were not born vengeful. I have some role in whatever thirst you now feel for revenge. And that thirst now tempts me to plot ever more elaborate escapes from our common life, from the schools and neighborhoods and airports and amusement parks that we used to share. We face, then, a problem not of these large impersonal forces. We face a problem of your and my relations. We chose ways of relating to each other that got us here. We can choose ways of relating that get us out. But there are things we might have to let go of, fellow citizen, starting with our own cherished versions of reality. Imagine if you let go of fantasies, of a society purged of these or those people. Imagine if I let go of my habit of saving the world behind your back, of deliberating on the future of your work, your food, your schools, in places where you couldn't get past security. We can do this only if we first accept that we have neglected each other. If there is hope to summon this ominous hour, it is this. We have for too long chased various shimmering dreams at the cost of attention to the foundational dream of each other. The dream of tending to each other of unleashing each other's wonders, of moving through history together. We could dare to commit to the dream of each other as the thing that matters before every neon thing. Let us dare. Sincerely yours, a fellow citizen. We just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with Arlie Russell Hochschild about the deep story of what drives Trump supporters. On the media, spoke with a Kentuckian about the many complicated layers within a deeply red state. Backstory examined conservative versus liberal humor. The Majority Report discussed the case of a diehard Trump supporter who lost faith in a heartbreaking way. The Ezra Klein Show looked at the shift in identity felt by those left behind by globalization. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk trying to reach across the divide and at least get us to understand that we haven't been taking the time to try to understand each other as our world changes. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, We'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's uh, Dave from Olympia, Washington. Just finished listening to what to me is the most recent show on taxes. 
And the conversation, the clip you played from the Jacobin radio show was super interesting. Um, and it, it got me thinking. Um, they talked about the myth of kind of the entrepreneurial guy has an idea, has an invention, goes out and builds this thing that makes society better and gets rich because of it. And uh, they, they moved on very quickly. But another point is that's just not historically accurate. That isn't how, you know, things happen. So rarely does the person who has the brilliant idea, the innovative idea, ever manage to profit from it. <laughs> it's, it's sad and, you know, feeds my cynicism, but more often than not, you know, that brilliant individual is taken advantage of and robbed blind and left, you know, bitter and destitute and <laughs> you know, just crippled by the system. Um, more often, and the example, I don't remember why I read this, but the, the example of, you know, brilliant innovations which make somebody rich are clever ways to screw lots of people out of little amounts of money. Um, and I don't know if it was a made-up story or if this was actually going on, but, you know, the idea of, you know, parking meters. Everybody pays, you know, a couple bucks for parking. This guy was going around marketing parking meters that would auto-detect when a car pulled away. And so that, you know, the, the next car that pulls into the space wouldn't get that, you know, free 20 minutes left of parking that the previous, uh, you know, individual parking there had left on the meter that it would, as soon as a car moved off, it would zero out. Uh, and so, you know, his this, this, this inventor's brilliant idea was to, you know, basically take those little bits of, you know, spare change that, essentially people were you know paying forward uh hey there's 30 minutes left on my meter i'm not I'm, I'm done here i'm gonna leave and go do whatever my next round is and hey the next person to park here gets three you know free 30 minutes it basically you know ends that practice and they uh they they, they gather up that uh, whatever spare change the city you know your parking department at the, at the city is losing because of that but it's just Nobody is made better by that invention. It's just lots of people are either, you know, cheated out of the ability to, to pay something forward or, you know, everybody, no, nobody gets any free largesse. Everybody's now paying for parking. Um, but, the, you know, it's not like there's more revenue generated or more, you know, more parking spaces created or less congestion. It's just a way to kind of skim a little bit from everybody. The other idea, and I, I feel like they were dancing around it, but never actually said it, um, but to crystallize, wealth is created by groups of people. Individuals never create wealth, right? And I think we can all agree on that, you know, workers working together, management, uh, you know, directing that, uh, the, the people that own the resources uh, that uh, led to the whatever product you're making you know they all come together to make make wealth make society you know better a more wealthy place with more you know with stuff either more stuff or stuff of higher value and and conservatives regularly rail against you know redistribution and you know you shouldn't play a role in distributing that wealth but that's that's exactly what happened groups of people 
make wealth, the government redistributes it. The, or the society at large, or whatever you want to want to call the structure you're living under, our country's decisions and the choices that we've made around how we, you know, decide what inheritance taxes look like, how we, uh, in the law, state property rights to be, and then either enforce them or don't enforce them for certain groups of individuals, the choices we've made around contract law and around patents. Those are all decisions about how to distribute the wealth that's created by groups, and by and large, the choices are to distribute that wealth upward.、Um, and though you know I, we're a capitalist society, that's kind of by definition what capitalism is all about. But the distribution is already ha- not—it's not happening according to the value you added or your hard work. It's happening according to Decisions by the government,、um, and you know the government can change their decisions about how they choose to distribute the wealth that's created by society.、Um, yeah, it wasn't said in quite that、uh, crystal of a, of a way, but I, I felt like that they were totally—they all totally got that distinction. They just never said it that way. Maybe it's you know something that's. Inherent and obvious, and they say that a lot in other、uh, sections of the radio. Anyway, I thought I would add that. It popped into my brain at the time. Jay, please, as always, stay awesome. Hi, Jay. This is Ryan. I'm a straight-edge male from a small town in Washington State, living in San Diego. I grew up in a conservative background, with only、uh, within the last five years of a shed that a large amount of credit going towards the best of the left. So I thank you for making such a well-thought-out podcast. I'm in the Navy and have a consistent interaction with conservative military members who very often repeat conservative talking points to me. I've done my best to rebut my many arguments, but find that I misspeak or I don't have the data to back it up at the, at the time. Later, when listening to my progressive media of choice, I think to myself, "Wow, I really wish Person A could be here for this. It would surely change their mind on the topic." But sending me, but me sending it to the person would inevitably result in a "I didn't listen to that liberal garbage" comment. I have been throwing around an idea which might help more people hear progressive messaging without a conservative spin. Came up with the name "Put Your Media Where Your Mouth Is" challenge. Example would be: I would challenge my dad to send me three hours of selected media, Christian conservative talk radio, Fox News stuff, and I would select three hours of progressive media to let the media be a best of left. We would、uh, be in agreement to. Watch the stuff over the next week, and then talk about what we liked and disliked from the pieces provided. Although it would require my consuming of a steady stream of Rush Limbaugh, this would allow me to bring facts into the discussion and reconvene. I think it would be probably be best to focus on a singular topic, such as income inequality or health insurance. Anyway, I appreciate the show. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. And I should just say, if you enjoyed today's episode, you should definitely go back and check out episode. 
1054 from November 1st, 2016, just last year. Uh, it, it was very similar to this one. It, it was even titled something very similar. So uh, if, if you uh, can't get enough of trying to understand where Trump conservatives are coming from because you cannot wrap your mind around them, there is a, a, a lot more where this episode came from. And I, I've, I've got to say, just in terms of th this episode, it was such a relief to come across that clip I put in today's show about conservative humor, because longtime listeners might even remember that a while back I struggled on the show to understand conservative humor. And, and there was a little bit of a conversation about it. People were calling in and even the conservatives who would call in on the voicemail line couldn't really explain why conservative humor was funny to them. I mean, basically their answer was just, come on, lighten up. Eh, come on. And, uh, and, and so today's explanation that you really have to sort of fully appreciate a, a conservative worldview to understand political humor that in my view kicks down at those with less power rather than kicking up. That was certainly a, you know, whether it's the right answer or not, it's nice to finally have an answer. Now, I, I would still probably argue that if you're a conservative and you're of the mindset that people of color or, or you know, women or, you know, any of these traditionally marginalized groups who over the last several decades, thanks to progressive policies, the government has sort of stepped up to help those people up from being in their traditionally oppressed uh, circumstances. If the things have changed so much and that they really are much better off now and don't deserve to be considered uh, in a you know, relatively disadvantaged position anymore, it still seems to me like you should be making fun of the government instead of those people. Um, but that's just me. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about today is, is this, this uh, sort of famous – concept. I mean, there was a study about it and, you know, it's a concept that goes around uh, every once in a while that the way we label things and, you know, how we come up with political policies and, and the way governments suggest how things should go are interpreted vastly differently by people based on who is proposing the policy. Not that conservatives propose different policies than progressives. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, if a Republican proposes a policy that is identical to a progressive policy, then progressives are far less likely to support it, and Republicans are far more likely to support it, and vice versa. And the way they do these studies is not, not because Republicans are often uh, suggesting progressive policies, but they will take a policy that, say, President Obama uh, put forward— and they will just lie to you know people taking a survey and say, Republicans put forward this policy. Do you support it? And in that way, you can see people's reactions change based not on the policy itself, but based on who proposes it. And, and so that, I think, is part of this much larger idea about how labels and party affiliations completely, well, maybe not completely, but pretty badly blind us to deciding who and what to support. And so that, you know, I got thinking about that today, making today's episode, you know, as we look outside of ourselves, you know, most of the people listening are of the progressive persuasion. And so we're looking at people who we don't necessarily understand or, or um, you know, talk with very often. So we don't get that perspective a lot. 
and it got me thinking about how honestly we're we're probably not as divided as we think we are, but because of these party affiliations and labels, we end up dividing ourselves more starkly. I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't a divide. There clearly is. There really are differences of opinion and differences in worldview that guide how we think we should run our society. But when you propose a policy to someone, you know, a, a democratic policy, for instance, and you say a Republican proposed it and a person likes it and vice versa, same for Democrats, it has to bring you to the awareness that we have to be more careful about what we decide to support and not support. And this was brought into even more stark clarity for, for me when I, I just heard a clip. It's a policy proposal about climate change that is being presented as a conservative Republican proposal that will appeal to Republicans in a way that no other policy really has and that it has you know been uh, sort of stewed on by conservative economists and you know climate activists and it's been presented to the Trump administration and they really just think that this is the way forward that you know if if Trump and the Republican uh, you know government isn't happy with our current set of regulations or our, our, you know, the way our Paris agreement is structured, then this is the replacement policy that can really help conservatives get on board. And just one of the elements to give you a taste of it is that it actually reduces regulation. Just, just, that's just a taste of it. There's a lot more, obviously. And so I thought what I would do is start this conversation today and promise you that there is a climate change episode coming uh, the beginning of next week where we will continue this conversation. So just be sure to tune into that, listen to the clips and this uh, policy that I'm referring to, and we'll continue the conversation at the end of the show. We'll, we'll try to explore if conservatives are swayed at all by this uh, you know, new Republican conservative-facing policy, and we'll see if progressives have a negative response to it because of its seemingly conservative leanings. So that's all happening next week. Don't miss that. Now, quickly before I go, one last reminder that On the Media is WNYC Studios' weekly podcast investigating how the media shapes our worldview. Hosts Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are here to offer help if you, like them, are questioning the very nature of our reality. In a political and cultural moment like ours that is so nerve-wracking, On the Media provides a weekly dose of sanity. So get On the Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you you get your podcasts. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See you
Christmas.